Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Leanna Scacchetti. And I'm Leah Harding. In a developing story, three Americans and several foreigners are being held hostage at a BP gas plant in the deserts of Algeria by Islamic captors. Speculations as to how many of these hostages have died and how many remain alive is still largely unknown. The Algerian press service reported that just over 24 nationals are still being held after this incident began yesterday. I spoke with University of Florida Assistant Professor of African Studies Terry Osabo on the current state of the hostages and about the warning signs that may have been overlooked. The incident is a support supposedly happening because of French invasion in Mali. So can you retouch on again why then they're targeting Algeria? Yeah, the the man behind this is this person called Mukhtar ben Mukhtar and, and he has allegedly uh, forced around 60 fighters under his command and uh, he was uh, until some few months ago the emir of Akim, uh, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb until then a few months ago when he uh, uh, broke uh, and from, from al-Qaeda in the Maghreb and, and formed his own kind of still unnamed organization and he is uh, has been operating in Algeria and uh, this is kind of his turf so so is it anger towards France in particular, do you think, or just wanting to be independent of outside influences? So basically, why do you think this is actually happening, the bare bones of the why to this incident? It is, uh, according to the statement that has come out, uh, directly linked to the, the French, uh, the French uh, intervention in Mali, uh, saying that this is a revenge uh, for the arrival and the action of the French troops within Mali. Um, and, and this, of course, feeds into a larger picture where uh, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb has uh, or are view, is viewing the West as a kind of um, uh, opponent to Islam, and, and this feeds into their narrative that they need to defend Islamic territories as they define it against any kind of, of uh, Western incursions, which they then... Infidels. Infidels. They juxtapose it. We know they call them crusaders and so on. Uh, so it is, it's a, it's, it's an old, old, old narrative that has been, been, been forwarded from such groups. So what do you think this means for France then? Do you think that they will withdraw from Mali because of this? Or what type of action do you expect them to take? Well, I would be the last one who want to speculate uh, on, on, the, on the future for the, Islamic, for the French troops in, in Algeria. Um, they started off with an aerial attack. And they have now boots on the ground. And it seems that uh, the number is increasing um, but it's too soon to, to say uh, for how long will they stay, and, and so far they have not said anything of any eventual exit strategy. And just to touch on a bit of history here, I know in Algeria it's arguably had one of the bloodiest civil wars with the War of a Million Martyrs separating itself from France. Do you think that there is a, a general hatred against France um, in the Maghreb, or... You, is there any tie here that you think you could link past to what's happening today? Well, 
I think, uh, I mean, this has been speculated. This is like a neo-colonial uh, intervention and so on. And I think we shouldn't exaggerate uh, that issue. Uh, of course, Algeria has its particular history of war of independence. Mali does not have that. And other areas uh, of, um, of the Sahel and the Maghrib, I mean, North Africa, have different histories and experiences with the France. And there are ties between the former French colonies and and France. So far, what we have seen is that people are cheering the, the arrival of the French forces in Mali. Um, and I would not say that the Akim uh, have a, has a special uh, enmity or hatred towards the French. It's more um, the, the, uh, the issue of the West as um, as someone who would threaten Islam, Islamic values, and so on. And then do you know why that this is happening now? And why is this, if the French have been in Mali for um, an extended period of time, what do you think the breaking point was as far as January 17th? Well, in one way it came as a surprise uh, that they, they, they went to, to this action as they did. Um, but it, it, I think it has to see in a connection with two, two factors. One, of course, is that the Ansar al-Din and the Mujaw in, in northern Mali were uh, moving towards the south, towards Bamako, the capital. And secondly, that the ECOWAS, uh, meaning the neighboring countries, have been discussing for months about a possible military invention. And now in the last week, they came out with statements saying that um, this could uh, not take place until September, which in a way gave the Islamists in the north a kind of uh, uh, go-ahead for, for an offensive moving south. On top of that, I have a report from Reuters saying that six were killed when Algerian forces came in to try and liberate the hostages. Um, this is a, a speculatory question, just wondering what you think, but because hostages were killed in an attempt to actually free them, is there an outside chance that you think that this might be uh, an operation linked to the Algerian government, or do you think it is solely um, a jihadist group um, a part of Mukhtar ibn Mukhtar. Well, the the hostage taking was, of course, uh, an action taken uh, by uh, Mukhtar ibn Mukhtar. Now, the the uh, the last developments a few hours ago was that the Algerian army went in trying to rescue and and kill the hostage. Uh, kill, rescue the hostages and, and kill the the hostage taker. So that's two different uh, operations: one taking the hostages, and the second uh, by the Algerian army trying to rescue and and and, uh, and finish the situation. Well, it's not Disney World, but next time you drive to Orlando, consider taking a detour. Florida's five WUFT TV's Juliana Valencia takes us off Interstate Four into one of Florida's most unusual places. It's a town less than a mile long with one hotel containing the only restaurant in town. But people come from all over to see psychics, also known as mediums, and what their future holds. Skeptical or not. 
I, I don't think anyone can predict the future, which, well, I guess that's not what they're, they're about, but um, I think it's more like a game. Just makes you feel good. The town is also a spiritual haven to people with this mind-reading gift. Medium Anne-Marie McCormick, owner of Sixth Sense Connection across the street from the spiritualist camp, came to Casadega with her husband after realizing living in corporate America was too much. And then I got fed up and I thought, you know, I have to find a place where I can be me. So I found Casadega. Most psychics live within the lines of the spiritual camp, but while the entire town is open to visitors, their goal is not to attract attention. To even cross this line into the spiritual camp to film, one has to fill out several forms that are approved by a board that meets once a month. But being a certified spiritualist or not, John thinks everyone has a little something. I think we all have those abilities to some degree, but it's like everybody can sing. But how many can sing well? Visitors to the town can choose different services, that you want from psychic readings to tarot cards, and most come away with a new perspective. The proof for me is in seeing how people have reacted, that uh, she's so spot on with what she tells them, and they're so amazed, and they come out wide-eyed, sometimes teary-eyed, sometimes laughing, but they're all just like, wow. But regardless of the outcome, Anne-Marie says your future is not cast in stone. It's up to us. We, we're all in charge of our own destiny. There isn't anything up there that says, ah, this will happen to you on this day. But for those who are curious, answers may be found in a small town just off the beaten path. Juliana Valencia, WFT News. The Florida Supreme Court has upheld a law requiring public employees to contribute 3% of their pay to the state's pension plan. The 4-3 decision on Thursday reversed a judge's ruling that said the law violated collective bargaining and contract rights of teachers, state and county employees, and some city workers as well. The law will help close a $2 million budget gap for state and local governments. The Florida Education Association challenged the law. The allegations of Lance Armstrong's performance-enhancing drug use will come to a head tonight in Armstrong's interview with Oprah Winfrey. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Maggie Schwartzman on what may have led to the cyclists' alleged doping. Seven Tour de France titles, beating testicular cancer, and becoming a worldwide figure in the fight against cancer with his Livestrong campaign made Lance Armstrong not only a household name, but a hero in the eyes of many. That all changed last year when Armstrong was added to the list of athletes accused of using performance-enhancing drugs. Tonight, Armstrong will address those allegations in an interview with Oprah Winfrey. Some are speculating whether Armstrong's battle with testicular cancer in 1996 may have led to the use of performance-enhancing drugs. Ernest J. Bordini of Clinical Psychology Associates of North Central Florida explains why battling cancer could be the reason behind Armstrong's alleged doping. He says winning the fight against cancer gives many patients the idea of a second chance, and Armstrong may have wanted to do anything he could to get the most out of his. Some people who are cancer survivors do certainly look at that as a second chance and uh, uh, to look at life in a whole different perspective in terms of um, you know, trying to accomplish things and enjoy life and uh, um, not waste a lot of time and things like that. So uh, um, one could speculate that uh, that probably could inspire somebody. Though many speculate that Armstrong's cancer could have led to the drug use, Bordini says others are also wondering just the opposite. 
Well, that would really be speculation. You know, one of the things that many people have been questioning, you know, is whether that there had been any steroid or other performance-enhancing drug use before the cancer, since uh, cancer development is not unusual for some of the uh, steroidal drugs. Armstrong's alleged doping has led to a fall from grace, including the stripping of his Tour de France titles and his bronze medal. Bordini says if these accusations are confirmed by Armstrong tonight, he could lose all the admiration and glory he once held. Uh, rather than an inspiring figure, you know, he, he would make him into a very tragic figure in the sense that the reason that people, you know, use many of these performance-enhancing drugs are amongst the basest uh, of our motives. They're about fame, money, fortune, ego. Armstrong has certainly been getting a lot of backlash from the media since these allegations were brought to attention. Bordini says Armstrong has probably been advised on how to deal with all of it, but the backlash is unlikely to stop anytime soon. This is probably very well calculated and prepared, um, and he's probably had a number of advisors to sort of how to deal with the publicity before, during, and after. Um, I think... Uh, you know, in the short run, he's going to, you know, if, if he confesses to um, performance-enhancing drug use, he's going to take a, an awful lot, lot of heat. Bordini says the most tragic thing about not only Armstrong's case, but all athletes accused of doping, is that they were once role models and heroes to many. Bordini hopes younger athletes will learn from others' mistakes. One of the serious things that I think that is disturbing to a lot of people is that, you know, when athletes achieve, you know, a, a certain degree of fame is that they're seen as role models. Um, and, you know, the culture of doing whatever it takes to win uh, you certainly uh, can take some people to some bad places. And, and hopefully, you know, there's a way to sort of learn that this is not the way to go, and, and perhaps uh, there's a role, you know, to educate future athletes as to sort of some, you know, some of the, the tragic consequences and fall from grace that can happen. Bordini says he will not be watching Armstrong's interview tonight. The first part of the two-and-a-half-hour interview will air tonight at 9 p.m. on Oprah's network, OWN. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Maggie Schwartzman in Gainesville. You can find lots of nonprofit organizations in Gainesville, but there is one in particular that is visibly making a difference in our community. Florida's 5 WUFT TV Samantha Kerrigan has an uplifting story about neighbors helping neighbors and the life changing effect it's had on one local woman. That may sound like everyday construction, but that's actually the sound of someone's life about to change forever. Linda Johnson was a teacher for many years, but after some serious health issues, she could no longer work. Her house fell into a state of disrepair, and with a non-existent income, she had no way to pay for repairs herself. I, my house was in bad shape, really bad shape, and I could, for, I could see it falling down, but I couldn't do anything about it. Fortunately, she found Rebuilding Together, a Gainesville-based home repair organization with a mission to increase safety, security, and well-being for low-income residents. 
Rebuilding Together has been helping improve the lives of Gainesville homeowners in need for over seven years now, thanks to its ever-growing group of dedicated volunteers. That's probably our biggest, uh, as far as way to gain volunteers, is by getting folks out, they bring folks with them. For Ms. Johnson, Rebuilding Together worked on expanding her porch, as well as completing repairs to her roof, kitchen, and bathroom. Miss <laughs> Johnson loves to cook and her children love to eat her homemade food. It was truly the most favorite part of her house, but she had to completely abandon her kitchen due to its enhanced state of disrepair. I get emotional thinking about it because I had literally closed down going in the kitchen. Thanks to Rebuilding Together, Ms. Johnson will be able to safely enjoy the company of her family and her home again and continue making those dishes she loves to cook. She will be forever grateful to these volunteers for the time and work they have put into her house. I don't know if, if I can say, if words would say what I, how much I appreciate what they're doing. And that's probably the greatest reward of, you know, just seeing the actual satisfaction and, you know, just the gratitude from, from the homeowners. Ms. Johnson likes to say, each one, teach one. And by that she means, now that Rebuilding Together has done something so wonderful to help her, she wants to do something for someone else. Even if it's just serving as an example of what's possible when a community bands together to help each other. Samantha Kerrigan, WUFT News. In other Florida news, Florida State University is pushing to keep its digital file program in West Palm Beach, although a partnering company filed for bankruptcy protection. Florida State President Eric Barron on Thursday told the Board of Governors, which oversees the state university system, that talks are underway with four other companies interested in replacing digital domain. The board, which met in Gainesville, is considering whether Florida State should move the program to its main campus in Tallahassee. Besides losing its business partner, the program has drawn opposition from Florida Atlantic University, which is near West Palm Beach. Board Chairman Dean Colson, meanwhile, said the universities cannot sustain more budget cuts in his annual State of the System address. The panel also approved the first performance budget bonuses for four universities. Congressional, state, and environmental leaders are hoping to continue to try to make the Everglades a focus for this year. As Florida Public Radio's Sasha Cordner reports, from a bipartisan group of lawmakers working together in Congress to federal and state officials exploring ways to continue their efforts through an open forum. Restoring Florida's river of grass could take center stage this year something that I'm very passionate about and something that's a, a top priority for uh, most of the folks in my district. Democratic Congressman Patrick Murphy, a new face in Congress, says preserving a historic site like the Everglades is one of his main goals, not only for himself, but also for House District 18, the South Florida area he serves. So he's partnering with another Florida congressman, Tom Rooney, a Republican, on some legislation that he says would do some needed good in the area. Murphy says what it comes down to is improving the water quality, and one of the ideas they're talking about is preventing the disrupting flows of dirty water. There's these discharges that leave Lake Okeechobee when the lake fills up to a certain level, and because of a failing dike, 
that is at risk of bursting at the seams, they have to discharge the water, and they do it out the east and the west. And when it comes out through uh, the St. Lucie River, uh, it really causes a lot of problems, and not to mention the smell, and the, it's filthy, it leads to algae blooms. So bottom line is how do we best prevent those discharges? And overall, how do we improve the water quality? And there's a lot that's been done, don't get me wrong, but it takes a lot of time, and unfortunately, it is very expensive. He says if something isn't done about the water quality, it will continue to affect areas like Florida's real estate, the fishing industry, and tourism. Murphy says these are all things Congress should be worried about, which is why he's all for the revival of the Congressional Everglades Caucus by two senior congressmen, Republican Mario Diaz-Balart and Democrat Alcee Hastings. I plan on joining that caucus uh, ASAP, and I do think that it's really a lot about education. It's about informing other members of Congress and informing the public about the urgency of the situation here and why it's so important to really so much of, of southern Florida. So I think if more people understood the importance of it, they would be more willing uh, when it comes to the appropriations uh, time in Congress that these projects will get funded. And on shares, the National Everglades Coalition co-chair agrees. She says there's a four-to-one return on investment on Everglades restoration, and congressional leaders need to know. Sheriff says with Republicans and Democrats working for the benefit of the Everglades this year can only mean more good things in the future to help with barriers to Everglades restoration. Well, one of the um, biggest challenges that we have had is that Everglades restoration, when it was passed under the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, rely on, as we designed each project, we would have to return to Congress and receive authorization, even though the project overall had already been authorized. And the trouble with that, it relied on a vehicle called the Water Resources Development Act, which traditionally passes every two years. However, Congress has not been passing Water Resource Development Act over the last seven years. And so we have had a challenge of how do we get the projects that are ready to go authorized so that we can begin construction. Sure says overall, despite some setbacks in the last four years, she's seen outstanding progress with restoration efforts and hopes to work with policymakers in the future. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Cordner. The first Florida Board of Governors meeting of the year took place today. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Michael Higdon reports on the meeting's agenda and the board's decisions. The State University System of Florida Board of Governors meeting continued today at the University of Florida with the State of the System address. Board Chair Dean Colson applauds the board's system collaboration and what they are accomplishing with little funds. You know, I think we, you saw a lot of enthusiasm from the Board of Governors about higher education. They have a passion for it, and I think we're moving forward in difficult economic times doing the most we can with, the, with, with less. President of the University of Florida, Bernie Matchin, says there is a change in higher education governance in the state. The Board of Governors is showing through its evolving uh, membership and structure that it is taking over the, the oversight of higher education in Florida. And I think that was the overwhelming take home from this meeting. We, we had four new Board of Governors people at the meeting they appointed, I think, six new board of trustees at the various institutions. We reviewed the performance funding model that the board is going to implement with the governor's help. So you're seeing a change in higher ed governance in the state that's planned and, in my opinion, is moving forward in a positive way. 
Matchin adds the focus the Board of Governors is taking will benefit the students. Well, I, I, I think that it, it speaks to the whole system of higher ed. I mean, I think U.S. students are going to be taken care of no matter. But the whole system involves hundreds of thousands of students, and I think that's what the Board of Governors is trying to figure. Things like transfers, uh, access to degrees, uh, focus on getting students graduated in a timely manner. All of that benefits the students, not only at UF, but everywhere. And that's the focus the Board of Governors has taken and I think it's good. The address was not all praise, though. Colson mentioned there is a decline in funding, and while partially made up with raised tuition, they are still a long way off from their goal. I don't think there's any interest within the state, with the governor, or any, um, to, for us to be raising tuition right now. But we can then, therefore, if you're not going to let us raise tuition, then give us more money. Because if you look at a University of Florida, which has 23 National Academy members, and you look at Berkeley, which is the number one ranked public, and it has 226 National Academy members, there's a big gap there. And you need money to, if you want to recruit the very best and the very brightest and bring their labs to the campus, it costs money, and you need money. We need to, we need to provide the funding for that. And there's, a, by the way, there's a, re, a return on that investment, because these people recruit the best and the brightest who come out and work in, in, your, in your state and so there's a good return on investment. High on the agenda was the awarding of performance-based funding to four universities, including the University of Florida. We're getting more and more into performance funding, rewarding the schools that are doing the best. And University of Florida got a re, an award today of $3.75 million for its work in computer training and education. And I, so that was a first, that's the first time for this board. So, uh, you know, under a performance funding model, the University of Florida should do well. Matchin adds the sources for the university's funding is the legislature, which will start the 1st of March, and the Board of Governors budget, which will come out in two weeks. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Michael Higdon in Gainesville. Green, grounded, and deep-fried, the chickpea-based falafel is a prominent symbol of Middle Eastern culture and cuisine. But as WUFT's Mark Whiteman reports, for one local Israeli woman, it's a symbol of hope. I like to cook, I like to eat, and I like to feed. And I like when people are happy with what they eat. For Israeli Leora Volkovich, it's the simple things in life that matter. Every Wednesday, she packs a truck and sets off to Bo Diddley Plaza in downtown Gainesville to sell her falafels and Israeli food at the farmer's market. I, lo I love the combination of the falafel balls in the pita with tahini sauce, with salads, fresh salads, you know. I love that. With her daughter's boyfriend, Riley, she works to satisfy her lengthy line of customers. It's instant feedback. The first bite before they even swallowed, they're spewing falafel at you, telling you how good it is. But it wasn't always that way. All I remember is I told Yael, that, uh, my daughter, that she can have the car and I'll go home with the scooter. And that's the last thing I remember. In 2008, Leora moved to Gainesville with her family and opened Sababa, an Israeli restaurant featuring kosher cuisine. Leaving Sababa one night, however, fate interfered. It was right here on the corner of 13th and 4th where Leora lost control of her scooter, spilling her out under an 18-wheeler and rendering her unconscious. Smashing her head against the underbelly of the semi-truck, she suffered extensive damage to the skull and a hernia protruding into her chest cavity. As fast as the accident occurred, the restaurant closed. 
Battling depression and suffering physically, Lior spent the next two years recovering, but away from her love. The restaurant was like a baby of mine, and I didn't have it anymore. In Israel, Sababa is slang for it's all good. And with support from those around her, in early 2012, Leora learned the meaning of Sababa again. She got back to doing what she loved, feeding people, making food, trying new things out. It was, uh, it was like a fresh start. This summer, Leora opened a new Sababa inside the University of Florida Hillel, began catering again, and started her weekly trips to the farmer's market. Enjoy it. Thank you. She's a different person. She feels good about cooking food, seeing people, talking to people. She's so much fun, and every day she surprises me with something else that she does. And as it turns out, she learned a whole lot more than just Sababa from her early years in Israel. You have to believe in, in miracles. It's unbelievable the way we came back. And I say we because it, I dragged the whole family back with me when I wasn't good. And now we are back. It's, it, it's, it feels good. Every Wednesday now, she's at the farmer's market, like clockwork, sharing her secret of Sababa. Mark Whiteman, WUFT News. Well, from green falafels to going green, sustainability is currently a buzzword that's slowly but surely becoming a household name. Florida's 5 WUFT-TV's Mike Biana has more about the growing green movement. Meet Sammy Head. Entering her freshman year of high school, she was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. She believes that in order to help herself, she must first help the environment and people around her. That's how she got interested in sustainability. The thing that really struck me was that it wasn't just about environmental awareness, it was also about economic welfare and social responsibility. Generally speaking, the University of Florida has a great track record of promoting sustainability. Through programs like our Sustainability Hut, we really ask people to look at one issue at a time and then one behavior um, that they can change within their own life to live more sustainably. It's actually packaging. By playing games and earning prizes at the UF Sustainability Hut, guests learn about becoming more environmentally friendly in a passive but effective method. But the fun doesn't stop there. The Gator Green team comes out in full force at FanFest before Florida Gator football games. Through a variation of the classic tailgate cornhole game, volunteers educate both younger and older Gators alike about the importance of recycling. They need to understand that their actions affect the Gator Nation in a positive or negative way, whether it be them cheering on the Gators or recycling their bottles or cans. UF is helping the cause on that front. The trash cans themselves are constant reminders to recycle as often as possible. Standing here at North Lawn, one of the most central locations on the UF campus, you can see a recycling bin next to a trash can just about anywhere you turn. But this level of accessibility isn't available everywhere. A quick scan of downtown Gainesville can show you that. Because of this inconvenience, some have taken sustainability into their own hands. Sam Spazier, a second-year doctoral nutritional sciences student, composts all of his food waste. 
And so what's kind of nice about that is comes out of the ground, goes into my body, goes back into the ground. I literally generate tops, maybe one bag of trash a month. But no matter how you decide to live a more sustainable lifestyle, Head says the biggest change to make is a change in mentality. The psychology of sustainability is a psychology of courage because you have to change the way that you think and the way that you view the world and make it more of a wholesome idea. So next time you have an empty soda bottle, remember to use your head and think about which bin the bottle should go into. Mike Biana, WUFT News. Governor Rick Scott is scheduled to meet with the state's election official officials to discuss improvements to Florida's election system. But some say more needs to be done. Advocacy groups like the League of Women Voters say Florida has become the butt of too many election jokes. And to avoid a repeat, the league's president, Deidre McNabb, says she wants the governor to create a task force. It would be appointed by the governor and by the legislative leadership, and it would show the collective will to finally improve our elections in Florida so we can regain our place on the national stage. The Florida Supreme Court ruled that a law which overhauled the state pension system and requires a 3% payroll contribution by state workers to be constitutional. The lower court had previously ruled the law unconstitutional, and workers could have seen a refund of an estimated $900 million in contributions and fees collected since the law was passed in 2011. The Supreme Court's decision is set to ease pressure on state and local budget makers. This decision will affect over 600,000 teachers. The spokesperson for the Florida Education Association, Mark Pudlow, says taking 3% from state employees is not the proper way to balance the budget. Well, we're, we're disappointed that the, uh, you know, the Florida Supreme Court ruling that um, upheld this 3% uh, income tax, really, that's been levied on public employees in the state. Um, it was a four to three decision, so three of the justices believed that we were absolutely correct. Um, and uh, we believe that the legislature did overstep its authority and ignored the Constitution. Unfortunately, for state employees, they can take no further legal action against the law. The justices made their, their final ruling. Uh, uh, we don't believe it's the right one, but it's the one that, that we will respect. There's nothing, nothing more legally we can do. This is the highest court in the state of Florida. Uh, what, we're going to, what we're going to work to do is to uh, uh, look towards the elections next year in 2014 when we will elect uh, uh, everybody in the Florida House and a, and a good percentage of people in the Florida Senate and all the cabinet members, including governor, are up for re-election, and we'll be working hard uh, to, to let people know that, that, uh, that most of those folks uh, don't care about middle-class working families. Uh, they care about corporate tax breaks, and they, they, used, they reached into the pockets of middle-class workers and communities throughout the state to balance the budget, and uh, we think that's a wrong approach, and we'll try to see whether we can get lawmakers and governor in uh, office that cares about uh, uh, workers and working families. However, not all public employees will be at a loss. The University of Florida Assistant Vice President for Media Relations and Public Affairs spokesperson Janine Sykes says that measures have been taken to counteract the cuts. Essentially uh, what happened um, affirms the University of Florida's position, in other words, um, 
there will be no changes going forward. Um, last July, um, faculty and staff uh, began um, contributing 3%. Um, to their were required by the state of Florida to contribute three percent of their pay toward their pensions, and that took effect uh, July first. Um, in response to that, to ensure that uh, employees um, didn't see smaller paychecks, um, and in recognition that um, the state of Florida was having a, a a difficult economic time. President Matchin provided a 3% raises to all faculty and staff um, last fall. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, I guess some of them took effect last fall and others in uh, January. So ultimately there is no um, change uh, from, you know, the Supreme Court affirming the, the 3%. However, Podlo says that there are alternate ways that the legislature can close the budget gap. Well, I mean, th th this was a choice that was made by uh, the Republican leadership in the legislature and the governor. Uh, there were plenty of other things they could have done. By the, by the way, at the same time, they were reaching into the pockets of state workers uh, to collect 3% of their paychecks. They were providing tax breaks to investors and corporations and uh, there's plenty of things they could do. They could close the sales tax loophole. That would raise money. They can aggressively uh, collect sales tax on Internet sales, which is a law they're not collecting right now. And they can repeal some of the tax giveaways for, uh, for investors and corporations that have been touted as ways to create jobs, but they haven't been creating jobs in the state of Florida. So uh, uh, it's, it's about choices, and this governor and this legislature are making a choice to uh, to hit working families uh, to uh, to balance the budget instead of uh, uh, of doing some things that uh, would raise uh, revenue in other ways. Now, Governor Rick Scott is a supporter of the pension reform, and he told reporters that the ruling supports his efforts to lower the cost of living for Florida families, and that it will cause new businesses to locate and grow in Florida. Thank you for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Leah Harding. And I'm Leanna Sc Scicchetti. <laughs>